you know, <clears throat> if not, and I can't believe I'm saying this, if not for the Wesley scenes, the Wesley and Picard scenes in the shuttle, this episode would be a lamentation. The rest of this episode is, in my opinion, awful. There's nothing good or satisfactory or enjoyable or fun or anything. And it's not even that kind of, <laughs> you know, so bad it's good. Something that's fun to make fun of. No, it's so bad it's bad. I uh, may be ousting myself with that opinion. And as ever, I do enjoy hearing other people's opinions, uh, even when they disagree with mine. In fact, especially when they disagree with mine. But good God. Let's talk about the the bad side of the episode first. It may or may not surprise you to learn, I think I mentioned this back during The Icarus Factor, that the writer involved in this episode is actually the same guy who worked on The Icarus Factor. Same duo. <clears throat> and it shows. There's a lot of really awkward, weird dialogue that deliberately sets up plot holes and then reinforces how wrong they are. It's very strange. Um, but I do want to give credit to the directing. Uh, this is actually especially true when it comes to the Wes and Picard stuff. This is Les Landau. Now, this is not actually the first thing he's done for TNG or for Star Trek in general. He's been kind of working his way up the ranks, usually as an assistant or a second unit director. But here, he's actually, you know, taking the full director's chair. Again, not his first gig, but it's probably the first thing of his that I really noticed. He'll be doing a lot of really good episodes in the future. He's not quite up to the level of, say, David Livingston, in my opinion, but he is a very good director, and so I just wanted to compliment that one aspect of the episode. So, there's the packlets. Why is the comm open just a weird amount of times? Like, there's whole scenes where they're just on the bridge watching Geordi work on the packlet ship. Like, And the comm's just open. Sometimes it's open, but it's unidirectional. Sometimes they have to force it open. I, I, and then they, they kidnap Geordi. Spoiler alert, sorry. And Riker, the, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm actually losing my words. This is one episode after Q-Who, where the crew of the Enterprise went up against one of the most terrifying threats they have ever faced. In historical context, at the time, going straight from Q-Who to this was just tonal whiplash to such a severe degree. It's like, we have fought the Borg, oh my god, and now we are losing to... The Packleds. Look, I can get some of the ideas behind why things happened the way they did. They wanted a tense hostage situation. They didn't construct it well. They wanted the private scenes with Wes and Picard. They didn't construct that well either. And they wanted there to be a ticking clock, so they had to go now. And they didn't construct that well either. None of this was done particularly well at any level. It is a badly structured script, because this is a script that leans heavily on the because plot button. Now, I've spoken extensively about just going with it, right, and how that's a problem in fiction in general. In all forms of fiction, it's not unique to television or movies or anything. But the step past just go with it is when you deliberately say have something happen, and it's so obvious that the only reason it's happening that way is because that's what the plot requires. There's no other logical or reasonable explanation for it. So they come across the Mondor. First point, why does the Federation know basically nothing about the Packlids? 
In fact, when they, they check their databanks, it's like, who are these people? This is functionally a race. Why? <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds like a weird thing, but given the nature of what the Paclids are, they had to have encountered other races along the way. Which also brings me another interesting point. They mentioned that they have technology from several other races on board their ship, which includes Klingon and Romulan. I want you to think, good and hard, about how exactly the Paclids are going to be able to trick the Klingons and the Romulans. If you're still having trouble, I invite you to go to YouTube right now, which you're probably at, actually. <laughs> Open another tab. Don't, don't, post, don't close the video. No, don't. Oh, I lost you. Uh, well, those people are gone, but those of you who are still here, go to another tab and look up uh, Gowron... Hackled. That's all you have to search for. If you really feel like looking it up, or if you've already seen it, what I'm referring to is a scene in Star Trek Klingon, good game, where Galron convinces a Paclid to come on board effortlessly. Now, granted, Galron is Galron, but still. <sighs> so we have no info on the Paclids. Okay. Um... So then there's the fact that the Enterprise has super mega amazing scanners that can detect details at light years range, and yet cannot tell that the damage to the other ship is artificial. Somehow. I know that sounds like a really weird thing to pull apart, but actually the scanners on the Enterprise are consistently garbage in this episode. There's a brief period of time where they're having trouble scanning the other ship at all, because the, the shields are blocking it. Now I can at least partially buy that, but... I really feel like the writer was like, oh yeah, they've got scanners. They don't work. You know, or, or whatever. Okay, so then the chief engineer decides to go over, and Worf flat out says, why send the chief engineer? Why not just beam them the data and information? And an explanation is given for that, but not what I would call a particularly good one. Then Troy comes up to the bridge and says three times in a row the word danger. Jordy's in danger. Jordy's in danger. Jordy's in danger. Uh, actually, two times, and then a commercial break, and then a third time, just in case you forgot while you were up getting a drink or whatever. Now, I despise the artificial dun-dun-dun before a commercial break thing. I've actually spoken ill of this over in DS9. Um, there are sometimes, in, in otherwise very good episodes of Deep Space Nine, where that kind of thing happens. I'm going to close this window. Where that kind of thing happens, and, uh, and it's just it drives me bonkers. Like, oh, here's a good episode, here's a good episode. But then this and this, donk, 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 cue to black. At the 13 minute and 16 second mark, Troy gives her, he's in danger, dun, dun, dun. And then they're just kind of like, okay. Uh, hail them, I guess. Hey, Jordy, you good? Okay, we're cool. Alright, keep me posted. At the 19 minute and 5 second mark, that's when they reveal their clever, clever disguise and shoot Jordy. Six minutes may not sound like a long time, but I want you to think about that in context. Six minutes, and actually, it's actually like five minutes and some odd seconds, um, between, oh my god, Jordy's in incredible danger, to the danger actually realizing itself. And that whole time, they literally sat around just kind of watching the screen, doing nothing. No prep work. No, uh, well, let's do this just in case. No, uh, let's see if we can get a transporter lock on him. No, uh, let's, let's see where their, sense, their, their shields are in case we need to disable them. Nothing! No action is taken. 
Jordy's in incredible danger. Okay. Well, I'm on my union-mandated uh, Riker break, so I'm afraid I can't help you here, Jordy. Sorry. So then they kidnap Jordy. Spoiler alert. And they do nothing about it. Nothing. <laughs> For a really long time. In fact, the only thing that finally prompts them into action is the realization that... Uh, or or the, the idea that, oh, I, well, we've, we've learned how the Packlets develop. We should stop their development. Which is a plot point I don't actually even want to cover, to be completely honest with you. Like, I agree with the mentality of you have to earn it so you understand the risks of doing something. That's a mentality I even agree with. But the way they say it is basically, well, we, you know, we just had a whole episode just, just last week about us earning the right to develop in our own way. Let's force these packlets to stop developing in their own way. So then they do the obvious, the super amazingly obvious deception. It's so obvious, I, I can't believe Riker didn't literally say out loud, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, <laughs> right? And then it cuts to war. Oh, you will never reach the 24th level of ascendancy. It's the, the path to true heroism. It, what I find even funnier is they're being ridiculously out of characterly overt about this, so much so that anyone would be able to notice something's different, even from previous brief communications with them. Jordy, who knows these people, takes like a solid minute to catch on. Like, oh, right, right, yeah, you're, you're trying to trick them. Got it. Wink, wink. Oh, my God. This is what I mean by, by plot, by, you know, it happens because the plot demands it. You can tell that the idea here was Wes and Picard bond. We haven't even talked about that. Uh, ticking clock, right? And having, so there's two parts about the packlets. One is the Enterprise being held hostage by an underdeveloped species, which is a good concept. And... The idea of having to think their way around a problem rather than brute force their way around them, which is also a good uh, concept. But again, the construction of the episode doesn't support either of these points. The Packlids are mentally retarded. I do not mean that in the insult sense of the word. These Packlids, as they're described here, are mentally retarded, as in their mental capacity is in a retardant state. They cannot think properly or function properly, and yet somehow, somehow they're able to hold the Enterprise at bay because they happen to have a hostage who they aren't even taking proper care to actually keep under hostage circumstances. <laughs> I bet you money the Enterprise could spend, oh, I don't know, a couple seconds bombarding the enemy's shields until they faltered, and then beam Geordi aboard and then be on their merry way. Just do-do-do-do, we're done. Right? <laughs> But that's not even discussed. No, that's not true. It's brought up once, and then they're like, we don't know what they could do with Jordy. You idiot! <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. There's, it, it, mm. I've heard the argument before from Star Trek fans that a pack led wrote this episode. And it's hard to disagree with it. Because what generally happens in, throughout the whole episode is people will bring up a point, and then that point will not be answered. Like a plot point or a plot hole. And then they'll just be like, eh, whatever. Which brings me to the biggest plot hole, and this one bothers me more than anything else. Hang on, I need to get my reference guide here, which is right here. I've already got it open to the page. 
Now, smarter people than me have already done the specific math on this, which is why I'm sharing this with you. A lot of the episode hinges on this fact, which is why this is so egregious to me. <laughs> Picard and Wesley are taking a shuttle to a starbase. Okay, I'm fine with that. That shuttle is seemingly, at least at the time, I know that there's other information on this, but within the episode, one can easily presume that shuttle can go to warp. Probably just minor warp, like maybe warp 2, warp 3, but something, right? And yet, they go out of their way to state that the ship is going so slowly and that they're not traveling at warp. They also go out of their way to show it multiple times not traveling at warp. This is kind of what I mean by, by like, showcasing their plot holes, because this is a huge plot hole. Why are they taking the shuttle when it isn't going at warp? If we are to presume the absolute outlier of circumstances, and they are traveling at the speed of light, which is warp 1, then we could say that the maximum possible distance to Starbase 515 would be the speed of light times 21,600. Okay? Now, that's a decent distance. However, at warp 7, the Enterprise travels at roughly 656 times the speed of light. Now, that figure could be debated, but there are things that establish this. So how long do you think it would take the Enterprise to get to warp to Starbase 515 at warp 7? I remind you, warp 7 is not their fastest speed. Answer? 33 seconds. It would quite literally take them longer to get their bags packed than to go to the Starbase. See, this is a problem, and I've pointed this out before when it comes to Star Trek. Star Trek writers don't seem to understand how fast warp drive is. Like this, this I've, I've noticed this problem in general when it comes to society. Um, they don't seem to understand scales of mathematical formulae, right? Like, you think of something as being far away, and without understanding, you might think far away is something way over there. You can barely see it. And yet, anybody who knows anything about, say, stellar phenomena knows that each one of the planets in this solar system is a huge distance from each other. The amount of empty space between the closest planets to each other is enormous. That's, I mean, I know that's real life, and we don't need so much believability, but my point being, that kind of concept, that understanding of the scope of that, is what a lot of writers seem to be lacking. It, it is Doctor Who syndrome. I call it that for a reason. So, warp drive is multiplicatively factors, multiple multiplicative factors. God, I'm screwing up my words here because of how stupid this episode is. Faster than anything else. It is ludicrously fast. That's the whole point. It has to be in order to make interstellar travel so normal. In order to be able to get from star system A to B within minutes or hours, you need to be going that fast because that distance is huge. That's why warp drive was made that fast. That's why warp drive has slowly gotten faster throughout the series, too, to broaden out the, the ordinary zone, right? There's a reason why the original series was so much smaller and so much closer to Earth and within the range they could reach, because they could only go much a much slower warp speed. This all makes sense. But then you have episodes like this one. It's like, okay, we need to send the shuttle over. What's stupid is all of this could be fixed by putting a warp drive on the shuttle. Bam. Problem fixed. Then it took them six hours to get there at warp. Now that is still a much shorter distance because of that whole warp thing I mentioned. Warp 2, let's say, or maybe even warp 5, is much slower than warp 8, for example, because... It's one of these kind of scales, right? Zunk. 
So that means the Enterprise could still get there much quicker than six hours, which again begs the question of why they just don't take the Enterprise over and drop them off. And you can see why this is a because plot problem, because they wanted the private scenes between Wesley and Picard. So they put him on a shuttle, and they gave really stupid reasons for it. Wouldn't it have been easier? Because I like to give answers rather than just criticize. I like to critique rather than just criticize. Wouldn't it have been easier to have the conversation basically taking place over the course of a couple hours on the Starbase? Right? Have the Enterprise jaunt over, drop them off. Wesley's going there for such and such. Picard has grudgingly agreed to go. And they're both waiting. They have their scenes together. Then Picard goes in for his thing, and the Enterprise, which has moved on at this point to go on with the survey that Picard wants to be a part of, um, encounters the Packloads. That happens, and there you go. Construction fixed. Bam! <sighs> that being said, I want to give special credit for uh, the Wesley and Picard scenes. I'm done. Well, actually, I'm not quite done with the Packloads. I just want to say that the Packloads are stupid. No, seriously. I have one last thing to say about the packlets, because I've kind of already talked about all the other problems with them. The problem is they are too stupid. The problem is the packlets are mentally retardant. <laughs> yeah, you heard what I said. <laughs> they have the Kai Ling field of, of reverberating around them. The packlets are designed to be so stupid as to be no longer believable. There are two other directions they could have taken this and accomplished the same act. Number one, make them intelligent, just not understanding. There are people right now in real life who are very smart. I'm not one of them. But, you know, the late F, you know, may rest in peace, uh, the late Stephen Hawking was a good example of someone who was very smart. You take someone who is very smart now and drop them on the Enterprise D with that kind of tech, while it is very user-friendly, they're still going to have issues figuring out what the hell they're doing or getting along or anything like that, right? In other words, they, we can be underdeveloped less than you are in, in terms of our technological expertise and understanding because we don't understand how antimatter properly works or how it mixes with dilithium or how warp drive exists or anything like that, right? We don't even have the basic fundamentals of any of these concepts, things that in Star Trek are taught in schools to children. We don't know that. But that doesn't make us stupid, you could still present an underdeveloped race without making them legitimately stupid. The other way you could do it is the obvious one, obfuscation. People who are pretending to be stupid and actually aren't. But no, no, the Packlids are the Packlids. I've heard a fan theory I wanted to share with you really quick, that the Packlids aren't stupid, but that these packlets are that this is one particular group of incredibly stupid packlets who are just eh, and they're the only ones who do this particular type of marauding to advance their technology thing and all the other packlets are just cool they're just whatever i mean we see packlets as regular background creatures on deep space nine we already have by this point if you're following with me uh, as of season two several times I kind of like that theory, because it means these guys are not only outliers, it's more or less literally the short bus of the packleds. Anyways. <clears throat> so I talked about the shuttle. I do kind of like the idea that Picard does have a bit of an ego. I actually talked about this in Q-Who. In this case, the ego is not so much, I am superior to everyone! Oh, I am... 
the greatest of all kings, and you may now pay me homage. No, no, no. Instead, it's he believes there needs to be a certain presentation that a captain needs to have and be. That, for whatever reason, he believes in that concept and doesn't want to violate it. That makes sense to me. What does not make sense is why he doesn't want Pulaski to operate on him. Now, I may have missed something, because I was making a point of paying attention. And it's really hard with this episode, because my brain just kept mushing because the Kai Langfield. But, as I was going through this episode... I never found any reason for why he didn't want Pulaski in particular to operate on him. As was pointed out by both Pulaski and Wes, she could have operated on him in, in confidence and ensured that that particular image would not be showcased. Uh, you know, that he would still be the captain. Now, you could argue that it's just because it's a small ship. You know, it's a ship of a thousand people, and that may sound like a lot, but as I've said before, it's, it's functionally an apartment complex in space. And if that's all you got... Rumors are going to fly wild around there, right? You see Bob go over to Bobina's house and stay there for a few hours. Rumors are going to start circling, right? It's just social nature. But it still doesn't quite make sense since that's never the stated reason. I have a theory on this. No evidence. Just a theory. I think this was written for Beverly. I think the idea of him being obstinate about Miss Crusher operating on him makes a lot more sense given their history and the connection the two have to each other and how much both of them do have significant feelings for each other. Not necessarily romantic, but certainly very intimate, if you follow. Pulaski, by contrast, has none of that. So I have no idea where the hell that came from. But I'm done complaining, I swear. Like I said, this this episode would 100% be a lamentation if not for Picard and Wesley, which are awesome! No, I'm serious. It's actually legitimately great stuff. It feels like it's a, a different episode entirely. It actually got irritating because the way the episode is structured, and I've already complained about this, so forgive me, but I really got to make this point clear. There's a couple of cool scenes between Wes and Picard, and then it cuts to Riker sitting on his hands doing nothing at the bridge. No, seriously. Rewatch the episode if you don't believe me, or if you have just rewatched it with me, you know what I'm talking about. Even when they finally kidnap Geordi, they just kind of, oh, I don't know what we can do. Is he okay? No, no, he's not okay. All right. Uh, Troy, what does he want? Oh, they already have what they want. Maybe we could try weapons? No, we can't try weapons. And then cut back to Wesley and Picard. It's the weirdest damn thing. Anyways, so Wesley, Wesley and Picard just kind of start chatting together. And there's a really natural warmth and friendliness there. And I think it's something that really helps sell these scenes for me. Wesley is obviously super hesitant and super nervous, but Picard is very open, warm, and welcoming to Wesley. He even opens up about what's going on. He hasn't told anybody. In fact, if you remember, Riker was on the verge of investigating what was wrong with Picard when they got called away to the Packledge things. But he easily and effortlessly opens up to Wesley about what's going on. Because there's that little bit of connection, that trust there. Wesley actually has a statement later that Picard would have made a good father, and I actually agree with that. Well, he would have been strict and disciplined, I don't think those are necessarily negative quantities when tempered with moderation, warmth, and love. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Picard has a very fatherly approach to command. And honestly, this is probably one of the best early scenes in all of TNG that really showcases that. The way he approaches Wesley is very precise. 
He's open. He admits the heart issue. Wesley confronts him about not liking kids. And you can kind of see Wes is like pushing a little bit here because he's been opened up. Like he's relaxing a bit, so he's opening up a little bit about it. But then Picard goes back, leaves the front area to go back and, and relax back in the lounge area, which you might think is kind of him pushing Wesley away. And yet the way he does it is in such a way that doesn't discourage further interaction. Instead, what Picard is doing is basically saying, you hit a nerve, give me a minute. But Picard doesn't say that because that's not Picard's style. Picard then takes a minute, and the next time we go back, he has chilled out a bit, puts it on his book and says, you want some sandwiches? Simple social communication, social interaction across eating. One of the most fundamental human things that exists is social eating. I'm dead serious. Um, I'll admit that can be debated. You know, competition is up there as well, obviously. But in my opinion, social eating, specifically eating in a group, eating with, sharing food, taking food, offering food and giving it, you know, is one of the most fundamentally human things that exist. It's one of the reasons why I use food so often as an analogy, because it is one of the core human principles that pretty much no matter where you are, you can probably understand to some extent or another, because you eat. Whoever you are, you eat. So Picard offers food, have some sandwiches, and then he's so calmly, like Wesley, you can tell Wesley has just been in quiet for like the last hour or two as he's been like, oh God, I pushed a little bit too hard. Picard thus giving him a reason to relax a bit, he says, were you always so disciplined? And there's something about that statement that is wonderfully demonstrative of how Wesley feels Picard is. Like it or not, Wesley has a tremendous amount of hero worship to Picard. Whether that's good or bad, or like should or shouldn't be, is, is up to a matter of opinion. But Wesley looks up to Picard as if Picard is the ideal. That's, that's what he wants to be. Kind of like a father figure. And so the way he says that, are you always so disciplined? You could tell there's just a little bit of that awe there, that I want to be that disciplined. And thus Picard being a good father figure, admits fully and freely, no, I did not start this way. I grew into this. And he decides to share a wonderful story about him making a huge mistake that nearly cost him his life. And the way Patrick Stewart tells this story is perfect. It really is. It is just the right amount of reverence for the event, wisdom that he gained from the event, and just a little bit of flippancy, so he doesn't overstate it. It's not like, and then verily, I... No, 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 no. He tells it in a very human manner. And I love his performance here. And of course, this leads into what is, in my opinion, one of the best Star Trek episodes ever made. We'll get there much later. But what's perfect about that is he talks about the stab. Now, I've done some looking into this. Near as I can tell, this was not intended at all. But he talks about the stab and him looking down and laughing about it. With hindsight, I think we can understand what that was about. And we will get there when we get there. But at the time, here, in this episode, it still makes sense that he laughed because he's, his, his brain is basically being flooded with chemicals to deal with the fact that there's a giant rod going through his chest. And he's coping with that, right? And I love that they were able to take this tiny little bit of character development for Picard and go somewhere with it, but it's also still good here. In addition to the great dynamic between the two, we learn more about Picard as a person. Imagine Picard for a second, 
all of that intellect, all of that drive, all of that ambition, all of that career focus. Now remove all of the humility from it. And that's what he's talking about. That makes perfect sense. Al Kirk went through a similar thing. Incredibly skilled, incredibly intelligent, way ahead of the rest of his team. And an arrogant snot until he finally tempered that down with wisdom and experience. Seeing this slice of Picard makes him so much more human. It would have been easy for the creators of Star Trek to just make Picard the Ubermensch. I know that's not the correct term, but you know what I mean, right? To make him the ideal human. I was born great, I was raised great, and I am great. And often fiction does that. It makes someone who is just always good, and thus never actually develops. Instead, Picard started a lot like we are. Probably smarter. <laughs> Probably more driven. Maybe not more driven than me. I'm extremely ambitious, uh, despite my low standing. But nevertheless, very low, very standard, very human. And he was like, ha I am unbeatable. And then, then he got stabbed through the chest and nearly died. I love Wes's face, too. I like to give credit to Will Wheaton when I can. <laughs> I admit I get defensive of some characters more than others in Star Trek, mostly because I hear so many people bashing them. It's one of the reasons I usually went to the defense of Robert Beltran or um, uh, Garrett Wong over on Voyager, was because I felt it was unfair that so much hatred was flung at the two actors for what happened to their characters. Um... And actually, Kate Mulgrew as well, now that I'm thinking about it, because Kate Mulgrew is a wonderful actress and was just working with what she had available to her because the writers had no idea what they were doing. But I say this as well here because I do think Will Wheaton does a good job of portraying the kid. As, he, as he's listening to the story, there's this scene where Picard tells him about the stab and Wesley's face just goes... <gasps> like, he doesn't actually inhale, but you can just see the shock and horror. Like, oh my God. I just, uh, uh, yikes, you know. And then, and then Picard gives this wonderful speech, I wish I'd written it down, to Wesley. He says, you should study history. And Wesley says, but that won't be on the test. And Picard says, no, of course it won't. But it's about knowing where we come from. It's not knowing why we're doing what we're doing. I want you to know more so all of this will mean something. I like that. Because that right there is a nice little slice of Picard as a character. Someone who believes very firmly in the intangible. I know that's been a recurring theme for my show for quite a bit now. It just keeps coming up. He believes in the concepts of ideal or belief or structure or doing the right thing or helping people for the right reason. And he wants this all to mean something rather than just being meat and numbers. And I like that. And then at the very end, Wes says, I enjoyed our trip together. And Picard says, I did too. Loved that. God damn, why did that have to be in this episode? Because it's just... Oh. Oh. Yeah. And of course, at the 28 minute and 40 second mark, that plot ends. They're there. Wesley does his thing. Picard goes to start the ticking clock. Because that's all his only function there. And the rest of the episode is just... I'm still going to call this a rumination, because there's really good parts in this episode. But, good God... I'm sorry for rambling on about this. I, I could do a whole thing about the problem with the packlets as a species. Let's not even get into that. Let's just say instead that I hope you've enjoyed 
and I'll see you guys next time.